Measuring Embodied Carbon. Welcome to Construction and the Climate. This is a podcast series from 39 Essex Chambers with me, Camilla Tahar and Ruth Keating. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the big climate issues affecting the construction sector. Today, we are joined by Sean Clemens. Sean Clemens is the UK Managing Director of MGAC and has a wealth of project experience, both as a Chartered Quantity Surveyor and as a project manager on the full spectrum of construction projects and specialising in major mixed-use development, higher education and complex public-private regeneration initiatives. Sean, for the benefit of our listeners who may be coming to this for the first time, what is Embodies Carbon? Hi there. Thanks for having me. So for many years, the industry has been focused on driving efficiency and operating our buildings. So looking at how we drive efficiency through using solar panels, how we increase our insulation, using things like air source heat pumps, all with the aim of reducing down the emissions that we have in the use of our buildings. And that's called operational carbon. And we've been looking at that for a long time. It's only really in recent years that there's been more focus on the carbon emissions created through the construction of our buildings. This includes the carbon emissions required for the production of building materials, the things that put the building together, but also the emissions from the construction process itself. And this is what we really mean when we're talking about embodied carbon. So we have those emissions from the initial construction of the building. We also need to be thinking about the embodied carbon across the life of the building. So when we're looking at maintaining, repairing or replacing components that go into the building, we need to be thinking about that. And then also we need to be thinking about what happens at the end of the life of the building, how we're demolishing it, how we're disposing of it. Sean, in terms of that, why do you think measuring embodied carbon is so important? So embodied carbon contributes to around 12% of global CO2 emissions per year. So this is a significant contributor Obviously, operational carbon emissions are huge as well. But as we're decarbonising the electricity grid, as we're moving away from using gas in our buildings, and as we continue to drive greater efficiency in those buildings, the impact of embodied carbon will become more pronounced. Another important thing to consider is that embodied carbon is mainly an upfront carbon cost. So it's carbon that we are emitting right now. Every time we're building something new, that carbon is getting put into the atmosphere right now. It's not like operational carbon, which can take decades to build up as we use a building. So this means that any steps we take to reduce embodied carbon right now will have an immediate impact on our ability to influence the effects of climate change and mitigate them. So if we start to focus on embodied carbon and begin measuring the carbon cost of different materials, looking at the different solutions and construction measures. And that means that we can have a really significant impact on the carbon emissions generated from our buildings. Thanks, John. I think that's so right. And it's such an important point to draw out for our listeners, that difference between operational carbon, as you say, where we can have these differences as time goes on and our methods improve. But the problem with embodied carbon, as you say, is it's locked in from the very beginning and there isn't anything that can be done. A question, Sean, that comes up a lot when we're talking to different people on the podcast is the perceived difficulty of measuring embodied carbon. So for the benefit of our listeners, could we ask you that? It's kind of a mean, practical or fundamental question. How do you measure embodied carbon? Sure. I'm not going to sort of lie and say we've got it all nailed down and we've solved it all. This is very much an emerging development. It's not been around for very long 
as I say, the focus has always been on operational carbon. So it's really in the last few years that we've been focusing on this. The RICS produced their first standard on the measurement of carbon back in 2017. There were a few gaps in there, to be fair. And they've just recently this year updated it and they brought out their second edition. So that gives you a feel as to how much we're all sort of looking into it and figuring it out. So it's not by any means a solved, tried and tested approach, but we are getting some teeth and some decent methodology in how we take it forward. So the first step is to understand the carbon costs of different materials. And the way we're able to identify this is suppliers and manufacturers have started producing something called environmental product declarations or EPDs. And what these do is they set out the environmental impact of a product or a material over its lifetime, specifically around carbon. So they're produced by the manufacturers and suppliers, and then they're independently verified by third parties. The importance of these, they are voluntary, but they are gaining weight, particularly because from the public sector, from the EU, there are increasing requirements to provide these EPDs if you want uh, government to be using your materials. So we've started collecting the data. We've now got a number of databases where this is all stored and that you can access. The one we use is something called OneClick LCA, which also provides the software to help you in terms of the measurement. So we've got the data, we've got the software that allows us to measure it. I trained as a quantity surveyor, so from a quantity surveying background, we've been doing this for ever, really, in terms of measuring and quantifying the materials while the design of a building is taking place so we can manage the cost of that building as it's designed. What's now happening is we're taking those measurements, that quantification, and we're applying the carbon emissions that we're getting out of these databases into that. So we're able to estimate the total carbon impact of the materials going into the building. That's probably the lion's share of what's in the embodied carbon, but there are other elements that we need to consider. We also need to start looking at the impact of the construction itself. What's happening on site? How are we transporting the materials to the site? What's happening in terms of operation? Have we electrified the systems and are we using sustainable renewable sources for energy production on site? This is the area that needs a bit more development and working closely with contractors to figure out how they're approaching it. Also need to be thinking about waste and how we're actually minimising the waste of the materials that are used on site. The next element we need to consider is replacement. So again, we're using these EPDs that are telling us, right, this material will last for 10 years, 15 years, 40 years, and we start programming that in in terms of what's the carbon cost of replacing these over the life of the build. And then the final element of it is thinking about the end of life of the building. There will be a release of carbon emission at the end, but we can minimise this. And we can minimise this by, at the very beginning, when we're thinking about how we're designing these buildings, that we're considering how we can reuse the building, how we can repurpose it, and how we can go about recycling. There's no good putting a really sustainable component in the middle of a building if you then have to tear it to pieces to get to it. If you can pull it out at the end and then reuse it, that's significantly reducing the carbon emissions. So we need to be thinking about all of this right at the front end of when we're designing these buildings to get the right carbon solutions. Huge amount to be thinking about, and it sounds incredibly complex. And London is leading the way in relation to requiring a measurement of carbon. For example, the GLA published last year the final versions of its guidance uh, for whole life carbon assessments and circular economy statements. 
Why do you think the measurement of embodied carbon isn't more widespread? So I think there's been a bit of a blind spot in construction. We've been so focused on driving down operational carbon that we kind of weren't looking at what the actual carbon cost of the material is itself. Now, if designers and consultants weren't really thinking about this, it's no surprise that our clients won. But the good news is that this has changed in the last few years and it's really gaining momentum. And the fact that I'm on this podcast talking to you about it and we're seeing it everywhere, what is our approach to embodied carbon? We're really seeing that movement. But it has only really been in the last five years. And particularly, it's only very recently that we started to see the tools be developed to allow us to measure embodied carbon. As I mentioned earlier, we didn't have the EPD, so we didn't have the data that allowed us to figure out how much carbon was in these buildings. We didn't have the standards. with The RICS hadn't produced anything. We didn't have the software tools. It's only very recently that we've been able to measure it. So once you're able to measure something, you focus on it and what gets measured gets assessed. But there is still a lack of awareness around embodied carbon. Though that is changing, I think, with the awareness of how key a role it has to play in our journey to net zero. But if I'm honest, I think the biggest obstacle is the lack of consistent regulation across the country. We have some planning authorities, mainly in London, that are now incorporating carbon assessments into their policy requirements. But the problem we've got is that they all take a different approach. So they all want you to present it in a different way. So even though we've got standard methodologies from, say, the RICS or the RIBA, a local authority might have got a consultant that says, actually, we want to calculate it in this way. To really get this moving, we need to see some leadership from government. And a big push that's happening within the industry is that we want to see a change in the building regulations. The industry has put forward what's called the proposed Part Z to government. And this has the aim of introducing mandatory assessments of embodied carbon on major projects. It's not asking for targeting right now. It's just saying, look, we should be doing this on all our major projects. The aim should eventually be, right, and then we start creating targets for how we're going to focus on driving down the embodied carbon in our buildings. But I still think that's a, a way to go. But yeah, we need to be talking about it. We need to be having these discussions. We need to be showing clients the benefit of it. But we do need to see some regulations start to be introduced. Sean, I think that's such an important point to flag for all our listeners, because as you say, there is this wide disparity in terms of how even different local authorities approach it. So as you said, they're London leading the way to a certain degree, the GLA, of course, last year published the final versions of guidance for whole life carbon assessments and circular economy. But as you say, there'll be a whole host of projects where either different standards might apply or no standards at all. So Sean, in respect of the latter, where there aren't requirements for a project, how do you think you encourage clients to think about the measurement of embodied carbon alongside operational emissions when they're not required to do so? I remember when Right at the start of my career, to be honest, we started focusing on reducing operational carbon costs. I remember lots of conversations with clients about how frustrated they were with the additional costs being imposed on them through driving energy efficiency. Solar panels used to be the bane of their existence. We're putting these things on top of our buildings. They're never going to pay for themselves. Why are we doing this? You fast forward 20 years and they're affordable, they're highly energy efficient. And I don't think there's anyone in the industry that would argue that they're not beneficial to a development. 
So the challenge we've got is the need to start focusing on this. And then we are early doors. So it's always a thing that we start focusing on it. It's not necessarily always going to be the cheapest solution. But as we focus on it, we encourage manufacturers and suppliers to also focus on it. And as they scale up, we should see some rapid reduction in the cost of these low carbon materials. So we can have that conversation with our clients. But one of the things that I'm actually encouraged about is while we're at this similar early adoption point with embodied carbon, it's a slightly different conversation. What's different this time around is this focus on reducing carbon within our buildings can also save money. The initial focus is all around how we drive efficiencies within buildings. So the first question we ask our clients or our design teams is, take a typical commercial building, how do we go about reducing the amount of steel and concrete in this building? So if we're reducing those, we're reducing the cost. Then we start thinking about, well, look, how do we reduce the amount of time we're spending on site because of the energy produced while we're on site? How do we minimize the waste produced? All of this is having us save money. A great example of this is when you're talking about column grids on a typical commercial building. If you go and talk to an agent, they'll almost always say to you, oh, it needs to be a nine meter by nine meter grid. That's what the market needs. That's what everyone wants. But the reality is if you opted for a slightly smaller five meter by five meter grid, you'd immediately reduce the carbon footprint of the building by 20%. This would mainly be through less steel reinforcement, but also thinner slabs. You're shrinking the size of the building down. And this obviously drives down construction costs. So when you then start having that conversation with the client and say, look, it will save you some money, it will reduce down carbon. Yeah, and do you think we can build a quality commercial building with a grid this size? Clients almost start to turn around, yeah, I think we can make that work. And what's more important is that when you start having these discussions, when you start thinking about this, you're creating a story around your buildings. And when you're creating an attractive story about the sustainability credentials of your building, you're making it more attractive to those that use it. That's what we do first with our clients. We start looking at, right, what are the solutions that will save you money up front and reduce carbon? Then we start looking at solutions that will save money over the whole life of the building. And we're finding this resonates really well with our university clients, where ongoing operational costs are a major consideration for them and burden they want to remove. So they're actually willing to pay a bit more up front to reduce the lifetime burden of their buildings. So you're saving carbon, but again, you're saving cost. So my advice to a client when considering embodied carbon, as I'd say, it's definitely worth doing because it gives you an opportunity to join in the fight against climate change, but you will find solutions that will save you money immediately. You'll find solutions that will save you money over the life of the building. And then you can consider the solutions that they might have a cost, but will have a significant impact on reducing carbon. And you can make informed decisions around that, which will enable you to realize your ambitions while still maintaining commercial viability. Just thinking about the fact that we are still at the early adoption point and the early adoption point of measurement and the importance of clients being able to make informed decisions. And it seems to me that education and training is key. What would you like to see in terms of the training of traditional quantity surveyors in embodied carbon measurement? I don't think it's a huge leap for quantity surveyors to measure embodied carbon. They're already quantifying materials when they're producing their traditional cost estimates. And it's just really a case of replacing the rate cost per square meter, say, with the tonnage per square meter of carbon emissions. We can access that data, we can drop it in. There is some training around that. There's some training around how you explore and, and identify the databases. There's some software you can use. 
but it's relatively minimal. And I'd say it's kind of basic entry level, if you like. But I think we should be expecting more from our quantity surveyors, even when we think about cost estimates, which is what quantity surveyors have been doing for years. We don't expect them just to produce a cost estimate and then put it in front of us and say, well, that's how much it costs. We want them to help us discover ways of being more cost effective, helping us to drive value into those areas of the project that matter most. Same applies for carbon. QSs have an opportunity to help guide their clients in discovering the solutions that will help drive down carbon in ways that are commercially viable. In my mind, it's you've got that initial entry level. Yeah, we can measure it. But then it's how we provide advice and how we are consultative with our clients. So our QSs need to have a depth of knowledge around the solutions that already exist. What are the options that we can play with? How much do they cost? They need to be able to collaborate and innovate with the designers to help us discover the new solutions that will drive down carbon. But the really tricky thing, and I think the really important thing, is they need to be able to make judgments around the balance of different value metrics. So that tension that exists between be it carbon or cost or whole life cost or any other value metric, how do we balance these to help our clients make an informed decision about how to take their projects forward? And so for me, there is a training, but there's more the shift in mindset. And I think it's something that the modern quantity surveyor needs to embrace. They need to be curious. They need to want to expand their knowledge base. They need to be open and collaborative and willing to listen and hear new ideas. And most of all, they need to be consultative in their approach. I think there's a great opportunity for QSs to have a real voice in this space. And for me, I'm really excited to think what the profession could look like over the next 10 years if we step into this challenge and fully embrace it. I think that's right. I think it's an area where there are a lot of challenges, but there are also a lot of opportunities. And I think that really ties with what you were saying earlier about it's really important that we tell stories about our buildings and that there's a sustainability story. And a really important part of that piece, of course, is the retrofitting of buildings. So for our listeners, Sean, could you explain what a client should consider when they're looking at, are we going to have a retrofit project or are we going to have a new build project? Embodied Carbon has really helped bring attention to retrofit and reuse. It was the former president of the American Institute of Architects, Carl Elefante, who said the greenest building is the one that already exists. So in other words, you're better off taking an existing building and upgrading it rather than demolishing and building something brand new. The idea is this is because it will take decades for a newly built, highly efficient building to offset its upfront carbon emissions when compared to a slightly less efficient existing one. And this is often true. You can't really argue with that. That's good logic. But it's not always. And this is the challenge we're sort of facing at the moment is how we play with this. And there's definitely an interplay between embodied carbon and operational carbon. And we need to work with that. We need to play with that. But we also need to think about things such as change in use. We're seeing a lot of movement from, say, retail to repurposing for commercial. That can work pretty well and you can make some steps in that. But say you want to change retail to residential, it's not always going to work because your floor plates are too deep and you won't be able to get the necessary light in there. So how do we make it work in terms of use? So these are the challenges we face and issues such as poor existing fabric. If we keep the fabric of a building, but it's just bleeding out all the heat, it's not worth keeping. So 
while we can say, well, we're adding carbon into it, actually over the life, it's just not worth keeping that facade. So we need to remove it. And so just as with any construction project, every situation is unique and you need to spend the time and energy focusing on finding the right solution. For example, we're working on a commercial building at the moment where we've ended up stripping it back to its concrete fame. So that's a terrible waste. But in reality, 50% of the embodied carbon sits within the frame and the substructure of the building. So we're keeping 50% of the carbon within the building. And then actually by driving the efficiency of putting on new super efficient facades and fully refurbishing the rest of the building, we're getting the right balance and we're getting the optimal saving in terms of carbon emissions. But then we have another project where we're looking at a change of use to a hotel with an existing commercial building. And the reality is we just can't make the building work. So what are we doing here? Well, we've reviewed it and we've identified actually we can keep part of the building. So we're keeping the basements and we're keeping the ground floor slab because there's a huge amount of carbon in there as well. And then we're building off the top of that. So you can't always keep these buildings, but again, by focusing on it, you can make informed and intelligent decisions about how to approach it. I think it's taking this holistic approach where you're looking at it in the round that will help us get the right answers. Very interesting to hear about this, the holistic approach and also the flexibility that's needed when looking at these projects. Another way of reducing embodied carbon in construction is circularity. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what's happening in this space and, and what the pull or the push is when looking at circularity? The idea of the circular economy has been around for a while now, but it's only recently entered into discussion within the construction industry, particularly in London, where it's a key focus. And I think you mentioned earlier about the plans that have come out from the GLA. But we're also seeing planning authorities starting to ask for circular economy statements within major planning applications. The concepts of circular economy are how to think about how we're approaching things from an embodied carbon perspective as well. And there's a lot of alignment there. So when you think about the scales of circular economy, they tally very closely with what we should be thinking about from an embodied carbon approach. If we can reuse something, it has minimal carbon impact. Then we look at refurbishing it. Then we look at recycling it and try and avoid having to dispose of it. And a good example of this is steel. So steel reuse is a great way of saving carbon. And when you look at the different options available to you, you really start to realize that the impact that it can have. So if we were going to take some virgin steel, put it in a blast furnace and then put it into our building, that's going to generate about two and a half tons of carbon emissions per ton. We actually took some existing steel, melted it down, recycled it in an arc furnace. Suddenly it drops down to 0.57 tons of CO2, which is brilliant. Unfortunately, we've not got any of those within the UK, which is a shame, and we need to get those arc furnaces into the country. But if you then look at reusing existing steel members, and we've started to do this on some projects where we're literally just lifting steels out of an existing building, taking them away, testing them, refurbishing, cutting them to the required length, and then putting them into a new building, your carbon emissions drop to 0.05 tonnes of CO2, so a massive reduction. But of course, the best saving carbon emission is literally just to keep the steel there. So again, this just helps us to think about if we take those principles of circular economy, how we apply them has a, absolutely has a comparative effect in terms of how we're minimising carbon reduction in our buildings. Thanks, Sean. I think there's so much there for our listeners to think about, and you've drawn out really well. How do you calculate embodied carbon? 
and what are the ways we should think about buildings and the options we have. And as you say, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all policy. Each construction project is different. And as you've said, we've seen so much development in the past five years, but it's going to be an area that people are going to have to be thinking about more and more, I think, on every single project they work on. So thank you so much, Sean, and thank you for our listeners for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars. Thank you.